0: Picture this, if you will. You're a physician evaluating a 27-year-old female who presents to the emergency department with chest pain. I had a cough that started last night, she says, and during a coughing fit, I got this really sharp pain in my chest. She points at her right chest, indicating where the pain localizes to. The chest pain isn't quite as bad as when it started, though it gets worse when she takes a deep breath. What concerns her more, however, is the fact that she's becoming increasingly short of breath. The patient has no chronic medical problems, but does smoke about half a pack of cigarettes per day. Vitals reveal a heart rate of 100 beats per minute, blood pressure 110 over 75 millimeters mercury, respiratory rate 28 breaths per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 95%. What diagnosis do you suspect? And what physical findings or diagnostics do you need to justify the required treatment? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from pulmonology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to, one, define pneumothorax and be able to list not only the different types, but also which patients tend to get them. Two, describe the clinical presentation of both simple and tension pneumothorax. Three, describe the pathophysiology of pneumothorax and explain how tension pneumothorax develops. 4. Explain how to diagnose pneumothorax. And 5. Describe the treatment of pneumothorax. Part 1. What is a pneumothorax? Under normal circumstances, the lungs fill essentially the entire chest cavity that isn't occupied by the structures of the mediastinum. The muscles of inspiration expand the chest cavity with every breath, causing the lungs to expand with them, but there's nothing sticking the lungs to the inside of the chest cavity. The reason the lungs expand along with the chest cavity is because the outside of the lung is essentially vacuum-sealed to the inside of the chest cavity. And this intrapleural space, as it's called, is perfectly sealed off, with only enough space for a tiny amount of lubricating fluid, you know... Just so your lungs don't chafe against your chest wall like a marathon runner's nipples and if you can picture that intrapleural space as vacuum sealed then you can probably imagine what happens when that seal is broken a hole created in the lung would result in air escaping the lung to fill the intrapleural space a hole created or stabbed in the chest wall would cause air from the outside world to get sucked into the intrapleural space and in both cases The resulting accumulation of air between the lung and the chest wall is known as a pneumothorax. Now, in science class, breaking the seal on a vacuum is usually pretty dramatic. But sometimes, when the hole is small and only a small amount of air collects in the intrapleural space, the hole may seal up on its own without any intervention. But when the hole is bigger or a larger volume of air is trapped, the condition can become life-threatening, requiring surgical intervention. When it comes to etiology, the most important distinction is whether the pneumothorax is traumatic, or caused by a mechanical injury, or spontaneous. Spontaneous pneumothoraces are further classified as either primary or secondary. A secondary spontaneous pneumothorax is attributable to some underlying lung pathology, whereas a primary spontaneous pneumothorax is not. But regardless of etiology, the most important distinction when it comes to disease severity is whether the patient has a simple or a tension pneumothorax. I'll go into this in a lot more detail, but in essence, a simple pneumothorax causes respiratory problems that range widely in severity from hypoxic respiratory failure to barely noticeable dyspnea, depending on how much air gets trapped and how healthy your lungs were to begin with. A tension pneumothorax causes cardiovascular problems as the collection of air builds up enough pressure to compress the heart and the great vessels. Needless to say, Attention pneumothorax is always life-threatening. Now, when it comes to epidemiology, pneumothoraces have an incidence of about 7 to 18 cases per 100,000 per year for men, and 1 to 6 cases per 100,000 per year for women. Not super common. But when it comes to primary spontaneous pneumothorax, the one that happens to people with otherwise healthy lungs, there is definitely a type of person who tends to get these. The classic patient with primary spontaneous pneumothorax is a tall, thin male smoker between the ages of 10 to 30 years old. Now, I'm 6 foot 4 and about 190 pounds, so you can imagine when I learned about this as a 23-year-old medical student, I wasn't too happy. But hey, at least I don't smoke, and maybe that's why I haven't gotten a pneumothorax yet. Secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, the kind that occurs secondary to some sort of pulmonary disease is most commonly secondary to COPD. Over half the time, actually. As a result, this patient population tends to be significantly older, on average about 55 years of age. Alright, quick knowledge check before we move on. What is the typical demographic of a patient who develops primary spontaneous pneumothorax? The answer is usually tall, thin male smokers between the ages of 10 and 30. Thanks for that one, Science. Part 2 – How Does a Patient with Pneumothorax Present? When it comes to the clinical presentation of a pneumothorax, it's most helpful to think in terms of traumatic versus spontaneous pneumothorax. Patients with spontaneous pneumothorax generally complain of dyspnea and sudden onset of chest pain. The chest pain is usually sharp and unilateral, and increases with inspiration. The severity of dyspnea is typically associated with the volume of the pneumothorax. Patients with tension pneumothorax, however, may present primarily with signs and symptoms of shock and may therefore not be complaining of much of anything at all. Traumatic pneumothorax will cause similar symptoms, though these patients will present in the context of major chest or polytrauma. Importantly, tension pneumothorax is one of the most important causes of shock and cardiac arrest in trauma, second only to major hemorrhage. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of pneumothorax? Like I mentioned, the reason the lung expands and contracts along with the chest is because the visceral pleura lining the outside of the lung is essentially vacuum-sealed to the parietal pleura lining the inside of the chest. In other words, the space between the two pleura is under negative pressure, at least compared to the atmosphere. The intrapleural space is sealed to both the external environment and the air filling the lungs, but if that seal is broken by a hole in the pleura that communicates with either the air in the lungs or the environment, air will flow down its pressure gradient and get sucked into the intrapleural space. If the hole is big enough, air will rapidly fill that space until the intrapleural pressure equals the atmospheric pressure. The lung will collapse away from the chest wall and will not effectively expand or contract as the muscles move the chest wall. More commonly, though, the hole is small and air enters slowly. The eventual size of the pneumothorax depends on how quickly the air enters versus how quickly the hole can heal over. Ultimately, a pneumothorax has two effects on respiration, both of which depend on its size. First, the collapse of the lungs causes atelectasis, or collapse, of a certain percentage of alveoli. The collapsed alveoli can exchange gas, yet are still perfused with blood, and this ventilation-perfusion mismatch primarily decreases oxygenation. Second, the loss of the vacuum seal that mechanically couples the movement of the chest wall to the movement of the lungs means that the larger the pneumothorax, the less effective the muscles of respiration are at causing actual air movement into and out of the lungs. And this primarily decreases ventilation, potentially allowing a buildup of carbon dioxide. Now, let's talk a bit about specific causes of pneumothorax. To review, what are the major categories of pneumothorax by etiology? You have primary spontaneous, secondary spontaneous, and traumatic pneumothoraces. Primary spontaneous pneumothorax, the one that occurs in tall, thin males, is thought to occur because that specific body habitus is associated with the development of lungs with subpleural blebs. Subpleural blebs are essentially dilated alveoli that occur at the outermost portions of the lungs, often located in the upper lobes of the lungs. Now, normally these are just an anatomic variant and cause no harm. But blebs are larger and thinner walled than your average alveoli, and following the law of Laplace, become even more prone to expansion and rupture. Even in the absence of underlying pulmonary disease, tobacco smoking increases the risk for primary spontaneous pneumothorax by about 7 to 100 times, with heavier smoking increasing the risk. There are also a few unusual anatomic disorders like Hogg Dupé syndrome, Barfan syndrome, and homocystinuria that are associated with an increased risk of pneumothorax. Now, because they increase the risk of spontaneous pneumothorax without necessarily causing underlying pulmonary disease they're still considered to be associated with primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Regarding secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, I mentioned previously that over half of all cases are caused by COPD. Emphysematous changes to the lower airway cause the development of blebs and the even larger and more fragile bullae. And the upper airway changes of chronic bronchitis lead to air trapping, increasing the risk of rupture through hyperinflation. After COPD, interstitial lung disease and lung cancer are the next most common, but nearly any type of lung disease can lead to secondary spontaneous pneumothorax. Now, traumatic pneumothorax is caused by external injury and is probably the most common cause of pneumothorax overall. Most commonly, people think of pneumothorax secondary to penetrating trauma, like gunshots or stab wounds, which can violate the chest wall, lung, or both. But blunt trauma can lead to pneumothorax as well, usually when the sharp edges of broken ribs puncture the lung and allow air to enter the pleural space. Finally, iatrogenic injury is a very important cause of pneumothorax, and procedures like lung or mediastinal biopsies are particularly high risk. But pneumothorax is also an important complication to recognize in much more common procedures, like central venous catheterization, thoracentesis, and mechanical ventilation. The measurable physiologic consequences of a simple pneumothorax can vary widely based on a patient's physiologic pulmonary reserve. Think of it this way, a young healthy patient likely has more lung volume than they actually need to meet their oxygen requirements, say 150% of what's required to oxygenate properly. So in this patient population, even a large pneumothorax may not cause them to desaturate. But as you start to stack the effects of things like age, chronic lung diseases, obesity, chest wall deformity, etc., well, now some of these patients barely meet their oxygen requirements at baseline. And as the pulmonary reserve decreases, the size of pneumothorax required to cause hypoxemia decreases as well. This is particularly true of patients with COPD, who are both prone to pneumothorax and have low pulmonary reserve at baseline. Tension pneumothorax, on the other hand, is a life-threatening complication of pneumothorax that has nothing to do with pulmonary reserve, because it causes cardiovascular rather than respiratory compromise. With a simple pneumothorax, the intrapleural space communicates with air at atmospheric pressure, meaning that air keeps filling the space until the intrapleural air is also at atmospheric pressure. But with a tension pneumothorax, the intrapleural air pressure builds up even more due to a one-way valve mechanism that's surprisingly common to lung injury. More and more air gets sucked into the pleural space during inspiration, but during expiration, the injured part of the lung flaps shut, preventing that air from escaping. And because inspiration draws air in with more force than atmospheric pressure, the intrapleural space can rise well above atmospheric pressure. And this is a big problem. Because if you'll recall, the large veins that lead to the right heart have very low central venous pressure. When the intrapleural pressure is high enough to compress the central veins, the preload to the right heart decreases, leading to obstructive shock. Like most forms of shock, the first sign is tachycardia, followed by hypotension. And by the very nature of the one-way valve mechanism, the pneumothorax will continue to build up air under pressure, meaning that you may have only moments to act, before a patient progresses from tachycardia and hypotension to cardiac arrest. So yeah, super important. Just so I'm sure you remember, how is a tension pneumothorax different from a simple pneumothorax? A simple pneumothorax can cause varying degrees of respiratory failure, whereas a tension pneumothorax causes obstructive shock as a result of the buildup of air under supraatmospheric pressures. Tension pneumothorax is usually associated with respiratory failure as well, but it doesn't have to be. Part 4. How do we diagnose pneumothorax? With wide availability of radiographic imaging nowadays, some older clinicians lament the decline of younger physicians' physical exam skills, kind of like how older people like to complain about millennials all the time. But pneumothorax is something you should definitely be looking out for on your physical exam. Like I said, Tension pneumothorax is by its nature rapidly progressive, and you may not have time to get imaging studies before your patient in obstructive shock goes into cardiac arrest. The key physical exam finding in a patient with a large pneumothorax is absent or decreased breath sounds upon auscultation of the side with the pneumothorax. And because other pathologies like pleural effusions or hemothorax may also present with decreased breath sounds, hyperresonance on percussion tells you that the pleural space is filled with air rather than blood or pus. If you can imagine, it sounds kind of loud and hollow, like a drum. The other reason your physical exam is so important is that it's the only thing that can distinguish between tension pneumothorax and simple pneumothorax, and therefore dictates how quickly you need to act. Because tension pneumothorax compresses the structures of the mediastinum, you may notice tracheal deviation away from the side with the pneumothorax. But tension pneumothorax is defined by the fact that it causes obstructive shock, not how much it deviates the trachea or even its appearance on radiographic imaging. So, tension pneumothorax will present first with tachycardia that progresses to hypotension, then ultimately to cardiac arrest. Now, obstructive shock looks a lot like cardiogenic shock on physical exam with cool, clammy extremities and jugular venous distension. But one physical exam finding more specific to obstructive shock is pulsus paradoxus, where the blood pressure decreases substantially upon inspiration. Technically, it's a drop in the systolic blood pressure of greater than 10 millimeters mercury, assuming you're measuring that precisely. Typically, pneumothorax is diagnosed on chest X-ray, since it's the most common test ordered when a patient presents with chest pain or dyspnea. The key diagnostic finding on chest x ray is seeing the border of the lung pulled away from the chest wall. But you should know that this finding can be tricky to spot. In a large pneumothorax, the lung collapses down further and becomes more dense, so it's easier to see the boundary between a dense, atelectatic lung and the jet black pleural space. But with a small pneumothorax, it's not always so easy to distinguish a lung border from a rib margin or to visualize the lung markings all the way from the hilum to the periphery of the lung. If the chest x-ray is taken while the patient is upright, the pneumothorax should generally collect at the apex and be easier to spot. Unfortunately, many unstable patients only ever get a supine chest x-ray, which causes the air to collect in front of the chest. And if you're only getting a portable anteroposterior view, it can be very difficult to spot, except for the suggestion of an unusually deep costophrenic angle on the side of the pneumothorax, known as the deep sulcus sign. Non-contrast CT of the chest is the gold standard diagnostic tool for pneumothorax, with near-perfect sensitivity no matter what the patient's position is or how small the pneumothorax. It can also identify other pathology that might predispose patients to secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, which is often helpful in determining treatment and further workup. But unless you have a high index of suspicion, the additional cost and radiation exposure often makes this unnecessary, unless it's part of a trauma evaluation. Increasingly, in the emergency and trauma settings, pleural ultrasound has become the initial diagnostic test of choice, if you have a high index of suspicion for pneumothorax. In a healthy patient, even though ultrasound waves can't penetrate air or pass through bone, the sliding of the visceral under the parietal pleura can be seen between the bony margins of the ribs looks kind of like moving static, or tiny ants crawling in a line. If the lung sliding appears to abruptly stop in one place, that indicates a pneumothorax. Now, in the hands of an experienced operator, ultrasound is both faster and more sensitive than x-ray for detecting pneumothorax, and in the trauma setting, it's often preferable as the initial test. The reason many people often find pneumothorax on chest x-ray, however, is because when working up spontaneous pneumothorax, A chest x-ray is often a better test to evaluate for multiple other causes of chest pain and or dyspnea simultaneously. Furthermore, ultrasound cannot reliably grade the size of a pneumothorax, which is often important to determining the treatment method that's indicated. Knowledge check, gang. Which radiologic study is the most sensitive for pneumothorax? While CT of the chest is the gold standard for diagnosing pneumothorax and is the most sensitive, ultrasound is the most sensitive initial test in the workup of a possible pneumothorax. Part 5. How do we treat pneumothorax? The treatment of a pneumothorax depends on the size, type, and patient symptoms. Specific radiographic cutoffs for size are beyond the scope of this audio brick, but in general, patients with small pneumothoraces who are otherwise stable and not severely symptomatic can be managed conservatively. Humidified 100% oxygen is administered since it can help with the reabsorption of air in the pleural cavity. After about 4-6 to hours of observation, a repeat chest x-ray is obtained. As long as the pneumothorax hasn't increased in size, the patient can be discharged with close outpatient follow-up. Any other type of pneumothorax, large, unstable, severely symptomatic, or ones that failed conservative management, need the pneumothorax surgically evacuated. And there are a few options. The least invasive is aspiration, or just stick a needle in it, suck out the air, then put a band-aid over it. The only problem is, if the hole in the lung hasn't healed over, the pneumothorax will just reaccumulate. You could also insert a small catheter into the pleural space over a needle to continuously evacuate air leaving more time for the pleura to heal before you remove the catheter the more invasive option is a surgical cut down to the intrapleural space followed by the placement of a large bore chest tube the concept is similar to a small bore catheter but a large bore chest tube is better suited to evacuating thick fluids like pus or blood it's a painful procedure and the large chest tube is extremely uncomfortable while it's indwelling. But this is the preferred approach in a traumatic pneumothorax, where chest trauma often causes both blood and air to collect in the intrapleural space. In cases where you have an indwelling catheter or tube, the device is attached to either suction or a one-way valve that allows air to exit but not enter. The goal is to keep the lung expanded against the chest wall to facilitate healing and optimize ventilation. Finally, secondary causes of pneumothorax, like COPD, may lead to recurrent pneumothoraces, in which case the patient may not only need evacuation of the pneumothorax, but also chemical pleuridesis. This is a surgical procedure where the pleural space is obliterated by means of chemical or mechanical irritation, or the use of a biologic glue. This decreases the incidence of recurrent pneumothorax, but can cause issues with restrictive lung disease and severe chronic or subacute pain. It's worth mentioning that if a patient presents with a clinical picture highly concerning for tension pneumothorax, in other words, obstructive shock, the traditional teaching is that you may need to perform a resuscitative intervention before diagnostic testing. Needle decompression with a large angiocatheter may be both diagnostic and therapeutic. If air escapes under pressure, it'll at least buy you some time and confirm your suspicions of a tension pneumothorax. The catch is that if they didn't have a pneumothorax to begin with, well, you might have just caused one. The decision to attempt resuscitative decompression depends on how certain you are the patient has a pneumothorax, how close they are to cardiac arrest, and how long it will take to confirm your diagnosis with imaging and perform a more definitive procedure to evacuate the pneumothorax. Final check, guys. What is the most common treatment for a traumatic Pneumothorax. The most common treatment is a surgical cut down to the pleural space, an insertion of a chest tube to evacuate air and any blood that might also collect in the space as a result of trauma. And that's a wrap! Let's see if we've expanded your knowledge base enough to deal with an expansion of air in the pleural space. First, can you list three major categories of pneumothorax by etiology? Pneumothorax, or the collection of air in the intrapleural space, can occur as a result of a mechanical injury, known as traumatic pneumothorax, as a result of underlying lung disease, known as secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, or randomly in patients with otherwise healthy lungs, known as primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Okay, maybe it's a stretch to say that it occurs totally randomly. Primary spontaneous pneumothorax typically occurs in tall, thin males between the ages of 10 and 30 presumably as a result of the development of subpleural blebs in the apex of the lungs, but the absence of underlying clinically significant lung disease is what separates primary from secondary spontaneous pneumothorax. Second, can you describe how a patient with both simple and tension pneumothorax presents, and why? Simple pneumothorax presents with pleuritic chest pain and dyspnea, as well as varying degrees of respiratory failure as the pneumothorax gets larger and more and more alveoli become atelectatic. Tension pneumothorax presents with obstructive shock as the intrapleural air pressure rises enough to compress the great vessels of the thorax, decreasing the preload. Next, can you list three diagnostic modalities used to diagnose pneumothorax? The gold standard diagnostic test to diagnose pneumothorax is a CT of the chest without contrast. However, the two more commonly used tests used to initially evaluate for a pneumothorax are pleural ultrasound, which is faster and more sensitive in the hands of an experienced operator, and the chest x-ray, which allows you to quantify the size of a pneumothorax and better assess a range of similarly presenting pathologies. Finally, can you list the three different treatment options for pneumothorax? The wait-and-watch approach is used when a pneumothorax is small and the patient is stable and mildly symptomatic. Otherwise, the pneumothorax needs to be evacuated, whether by aspiration, a small-bore catheter over a needle, or a surgical cut-down to the pleural space, followed by placement of a chest tube. If the pneumothorax is recurrent, the patient may be a candidate for pleurodesis, or the ablation of the pleural space. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, Let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 27-year-old female smoker presents to the emergency department with pleuritic chest pain and worsening dyspnea. What diagnosis do you suspect, and what confirmatory findings are needed to justify treatment? Auscultation of the chest reveals diminished breath sounds in the right hemithorax, strongly suggesting that the patient has developed a pneumothorax. Since the patient is stable enough for further diagnostic testing, you have time to perform a bedside pleural ultrasound, which confirms your suspicions. You consider the possibility of conservative management, but your patient is markedly dyspneic, tachypneic, and on the border of hypoxemia. So you walk the patient through the required procedure. She looks pale, but she just wants the horrible feeling of dyspnea to stop. We'll place a small catheter, you reassure her, It'll need to stay in for a few days until we're sure your lung is healed. I can't promise it'll be comfortable having the catheter in there, but we'll do what we can to make it tolerable. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends.